Once again, good morning. It's good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5? And as always, for the sake of the new folks, we uh, just to let you know we are currently working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as I said, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 5. In a series we've entitled, Jesus Declares His Divinity. Now, when John opened his gospel, he stated clearly and definitively that Jesus Christ was, and of course is, God in human form. Way back in John 1, verse 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word. That's a title for Jesus Christ. We know that from Revelation 19. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Incarnation. As we've been saying in this series, guys, this is not an inconsequential truth. Our eternal destiny hangs in the balance when it comes to understanding who Jesus Christ is. As he himself said in John 8, 24, Unless you believe that I am, I'm the great I am, God Almighty, in human form, you're going to die in your sins. This is not, this is a, a non-negotiable doctrine. You have to believe in the divinity of Christ to be saved. And so in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 17 to 30, Jesus makes five claims of his own divinity, five claims of equality with God the Father. And let me just read them to you. He claimed equality with God in his person, verses 17 and 18. He claimed equality with God in his work, verse 19. Jesus claimed equality with God in his power over life and death, verses 20 and 21. Then he claimed equality with God in his authority to judge, verse 22 and then verses 24 to 30. And finally, Jesus claimed equality with God in Honor. Now, guys, as we have been saying, this is pivotal in that starting right here, the persecution against Jesus by his enemies began to wrap, ramp up and eventually shifted into high gear leading up to his crucifixion. And most of it, most of it was the result of him going around constantly claiming to be equal with God. And as we have said numerous times in the course of this study, no one can be equal with God who is not God. So the idea is Jesus Christ got in hot water with the Pharisees and scribes uh, and others who accused him of blasphemy because, and the Greek says, he constantly went around claiming to be equal with God, claiming to be God, declaring his own divinity. Now, of course, that would be blasphemous if he wasn't God, uh, but of course he is. So last week in our study, we got as far as the fourth main point in our outline, Jesus claims equality with God in his authority to judge. Let's back up to verse 20, 21, where we read, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. As we said last time in verses 21 and 2, First, Jesus claimed equality with the Father in his power to raise the dead. And then he coupled it with a claim of equality with the Father in his authority to judge the world. And now, starting in verse 24, running through the end of verse 29, 
The Lord amplifies this truth by focusing his remarks on the resurrection of the dead and the coming judgment. Now, very important, last time we said that Jesus is qualified to sit in judgment over the people of this world for two very important reasons, both of which are rooted in his divinity. Number one, because he is the creator. He is qualified and worthy to judge, first of all, because he is the creator. The only person in the universe who has the right to sit in judgment of people, the people of this world, is the one who created them and gave them life in the first place. And that would be God Almighty, more specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John said in chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by him. And without him was nothing made that was made. He is the creator of all. He has the right to judge his creation, number one. Number two, he has the right to, judge, to be judged because he is sinless. The only person who could righteously sit in judgment of mankind was a man, a descendant of Adam, who himself was morally perfect and sinless. And of course, that man was Jesus Christ. God in human form, we call him the God-man. Fully God and fully man. So again, guys, when Jesus said the Father had given him the responsibility of judging the people of this world, well, it was yet another declaration of his divinity because only God has the right to judge. In fact, we saw last time that that's a title of his sprinkled throughout the Old Testament and even the New. God is a righteous judge who judges you know, the people of this world. Uh, Genesis 18, uh, the righteous judge of all the earth. But once again, resurrection and ultimately judgment are the subjects that are being dealt with by Jesus in verses 24 through 29. Let's read this whole section, then we'll just take part of it this morning. John 5, 24. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. These verses have been called by numerous theologians and commentators as some of the greatest in the Bible for helping people to understand what the Bible teaches about resurrection and the coming judgment. And the Lord Jesus began this section with the words, most assuredly. Now we've talked about that. Whenever, and I'm reading from the New King James, and that's the way it's put in the New King James. Whenever Jesus said, most assuredly, it was his way of saying, what I'm about to say is very important. Don't miss this. But then he adds a little emphasis, something else to bolster what he's trying to get across. He said, a personal announcement, he said, most assuredly, I say to you. That would be like saying, 
most assuredly, I solemnly swear to you. This is something that's very important. And of course, the subject matter is eternal life. There is nothing in the universe more important than eternal life. Where you spend eternity is the most important question, the most important topic and subject you will ever face. I know we got everything else above it. People are not even thinking about where they're going to spend eternity. They're so locked into time. They're so busy with this life, they don't realize they're missing out on the most important subject and topic in the universe. Where am I going to spend eternity? That's why Jesus emphasized, look, most assuredly I say to you, I solemnly swear that you need to listen to what I'm about to say because I am going to talk to you in a very personal and yet very powerful way about resurrection. What's a little confusing, guys, and why some misinterpret what Jesus is saying here about the resurrection of the dead is because there are actually three different resurrections in view here. Three different resurrections in view. One spiritual and the other two physical. I'll break them down for you. First of all, we have in verses 24 to 27, the spiritual resurrection of the lost. Then in verses 28 to the beginning of verse 29, we have the physical resurrection of believers. And finally, the end of 20, verse 29, we have the physical resurrection of unbelievers. Let's just take that first one today. The spiritual resurrection of the lost. In verses 24 and 5, Jesus describes the resurrection of the lost unto eternal life. Now, Paul uh, talked about this same thing in Ephesians 2 and kind of amplified it a little bit. So turn to Ephesians 2. And I want to just read you what Paul had to say on the subject. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1 where Paul said, and you he made alive, talking about the Lord Jesus. In other words, he resurrected you is the idea, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that would be the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also... We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So guys, before we got saved, we were only born once, physically, right? Everybody born into this world is born physically is born, uh, that's the first time they are born, of course, uh, and then we read in uh, Colossians 15.22 that um, this is being born in Adam. All of us are descendants of Adam. We can all trace our genealogy back to Adam and Eve. Adam was the federal head. Adam, when he sinned, the sin passed from him uh, down to all of his descendants. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Adam, all those born in Adam are going to die. Now you read that and you go, well, of course, we're all going to die physically, and that's true, but that's not entirely what Paul or was, was saying in that scripture. The idea is that lost sinners not only die once physically, but listen, they also die a second time spiritually. 
You don't have to turn to this, but let me read to you Revelation 21, verse 8. There's a couple others we can look at, but I'll just look at this one. Revelation 21, verse 8, talking about the final destination of all unbelievers. It says, but cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The lake of fire, or hell, as we call it. This is the second death. This, so for the unbeliever who doesn't receive Christ, they die once physically. They die a second time spiritually and eternally by being cast into hell. So again, these are those who are born once, but they die twice physically and spiritually. Guys, hell is God's final judgment upon unbelievers. His wrath which all those born of Adam will endure for eternity. And this is what Paul meant when he said that unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins. And then he referred to them as children of wrath in Ephesians 2. In other words, we were all born into this world alive physically, but dead spiritually. Our spirit was dead. And that happened ever since Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. You remember when God placed Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden, probably thousands of trees, fruit-bearing trees they could eat from. God said, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden except for one. You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, you will die. Well, they did eat from that tree. And skeptics say, but they didn't die. So you can't trust the Bible. They didn't die. God says they're going to die. They didn't die. Well, they did die. But they died spiritually, not physically. Of course, it did set in motion the second law of entropy, which says everything is wearing out, getting older, rusting, and dying. Okay? In fact, the Hebrew is dying, you will surely die. So physical death was set in motion uh, when Adam and Eve sinned. But what happened instantly was their spirit died. Our, we are connected to God spirit to spirit. Our spirit with his spirit. That's the way Adam and Eve commune with God in the garden. They had fellowship with him. It was all because they were connected to him spirit to spirit. But when they sinned, their spirit died. They were severed from God. They became fallen creatures. And no more was the life of God now flowing through them. They had severed themselves from God through sin. And as such, because God is life, severing themselves from God, they began to grow old and, began, and then would eventually die. Very important that we understand that, Okay. But not only were they going to die physically, but God, now the wrath of God was upon them because they were fallen sinners. They had disobeyed God. God had told them not to eat the forbidden fruit. They went ahead and ate it. And therefore, sin entered into their souls. And sin must be dealt with. Sin has to be judged. And so at that point, the wrath of God was not only upon Adam and Eve, but upon all their descendants. All of us are born into this world as fallen sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, children of coming judgment is the idea. All unbelievers have God's wrath hanging over them. Listen to me carefully. They are not good people on their way to heaven, as so many think. They are condemned sinners on their way to hell. Jesus made that very clear in John chapter 3, when he said, starting in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world, the people of this world, um, through him might be saved. Listen. He who does not believe in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. Excuse me, I'm sorry. He who believes in him is not condemned. In other words, we don't go to hell. We're not condemned any longer, right? But he who does not believe in Christ, listen, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. People don't realize that they have been born, when they are born into this world, they are born with a sentence of death upon them. It's the, the, the trial, the case has already been determined. It happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced them guilty. God put a curse upon them. God said that the, their sin had to be judged. Every one of their descendants, everybody in this room, before you became a Christian, had the wrath of God abiding on you. In other words, you were doomed for judgment. You were doomed to spend eternity in hell. But when a person receives Jesus into their heart as their Lord and Savior, a miracle happens. They are born again. Read John 3. They are born again. And as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, listen, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This means that the Christian has experienced really two births. Physical birth, obviously. And then a spiritual birth where he or she is now born again. What actually happens, guys, going back to what I said earlier, that we were born into this world. We were made a triune being, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, made in the image of God, who's a triune being, right? When man sinned in the garden, his spirit died. Every one of us were born with a dead spirit. And as such, we had no interaction with God. I'm not saying we didn't go to church. I'm not saying we didn't light a few candles or do some other religious things. I'm just saying we didn't really interact with... We had religion, but not a relationship. Very different, okay? But once we gave our heart to Christ, we experienced a second birth. Our spirit was actually resurrected. That's what I want you to see here. Our dead spirit was actually resurrected. And that's what Jesus is referring to in John 5.25. When he said, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In other words, be resurrected to new life in Christ. Let's break down verse 24 uh, part by part because it's extremely important we understand what the Lord is saying. So first of all, he says, he who hears my word. Now, of course, the word he's talking about is the word he preached, the gospel. The gospel. When he says, he who hears, hears my word. To hear the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just mean to hear with your ears. There's a lot of people who have heard the gospel preached to them many times. But have never done anything about it. In fact, they didn't think it important enough to give it any real consideration. And so they heard, but they didn't listen, if you will. On several different occasions, after making a critical point with regard to salvation, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That was his way of saying, for those of you who have open hearts, and believe me, a lot of folks that followed Jesus' ministry didn't have open hearts. 
Some of them were scribes and Pharisees, chief priests, who would attend his little gatherings and hear him preach, but they only wanted to find something they could use against him in a court of law to accuse him. So they didn't have open hearts. But a lot of the folks that follow the Lord Jesus did have open hearts, and to those he is talking to. And he's basically saying, for those of you who have open hearts, don't let what I've just said go in one ear and out the other. Listen with your heart, not just your ears, and do something about what I am saying. And just what did Jesus want them and all people to do with his gospel presentation? Well, of course, he wanted them to believe. And he goes on to say that. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Now, let me ask you this. Is Jesus speaking generically here? That anyone who simply believes in God is saved and going to heaven? Well, of course not. He didn't mean just believing intellectually that God exists is going to get a person into heaven. I mean, many people believe that God is real, but they're not saved. In fact, James tells us in his epistle, even the demons believe in God and tremble. Now, the idea here is that a person must believe with their heart that the true and living God, the God of the Bible, has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. You see, when Jesus said uh, to, to be saved, you have to believe, one of the things he said, in him who has sent me. That was a roundabout way of saying believe in me, but you see, he was talking to people who didn't think he was from God. The Pharisees and scribes, they thought he was anti-God anti-messiah because he went around breaking the sabbath the true messiah would never do that of course as we have been saying jesus never violated the sabbath law he only violated their stupid man-made rules of what they thought the sabbath law was all about but they thought he was the enemy of god they thought he was working against the purposes of God. And he's trying to refute that. And he goes about it by, by meeting them in their level and saying, no, 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 I'm not against the Father. The Father's not against me. Remember last week? We are very dear friends. Remember the word phileo? For friendship, love is what it was used of their relationship. The Father and I are very dear friends. He never does anything without getting me involved in it, and I never do anything against what he has said. We work together, all right? And you need to believe that he sent me. I'm working for him. I'm his son. He sent me into the world. See, that's, it's all wrapped up in this idea of believing the right things about Christ. you got to believe that I have, been, I have come from the Father. Now, what must a person believe? Well, in part, that God, the Father, sent Jesus into this world to be our, listen, Savior. That implies a person acknowledges that they're sinners. There's a lot of people who think they're good people that are on their way to heaven, all right? And if you had pressed them on it, they would probably tell you, well, I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. What do I need Jesus for? I'm going to get to heaven by my good works. No, you're not. But a lot of people think that, right? Uh, was it uh, Proverbs 20, verse 60? Pretty much every man declares each his own goodness. But the idea is, I have to, you know, the, the, the point of the, the sword of the Spirit, talking about the gospel, word of God, it's gospel. The point of the Spirit pierces the heart in the area of our sin. If you don't know and believe you're a sinner, I don't think you can get saved. You know why? 
Because you have to believe you're a sinner before you can repent of your sins. Repentance is the first step of the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel, the Bible says. The idea is that if a person thinks they're good enough to make it into heaven on their own, they're not going to get there. So obviously, when Jesus said, you've got to believe uh, the Father sent me into the world to be Savior, it implies you've got to acknowledge you're a sinner. Only sinners see their need for a Savior, right? Good people don't need a Savior. They're going to, God, I'll get there. I'm working real hard, God. Give me, let me light a few more candles and pray a couple more rosaries. I'll be there. I'll, I'm, and I was a Catholic, so I can, I can make it, Lord. Watch. And, and that's not true. We know it's not true. Look, to be saved, a person must believe that God, what God says about his son, Jesus Christ, that he is God, the son, second person of the Trinity, John 8, 24, the great I am. The only way to the Father because he alone went to the cross and died for our sins. We're going to get to it eventually, a few years, but John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, right? He's the only way to the Father, through the blood of his cross. But, but here, don't miss this. When we uh, study chapter 1, verse 12, uh, I tried to hit on this because it's very important. Well, let me say it again. John 1, verse 12, talking about salvation now, right? Receiving Christ. It says, But as many as received him, received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. John makes it a point to say that a person must believe in and receive Jesus Christ into their heart as Lord and Savior to be saved. True saving faith, guys true saving faith is not mere mental assent what does that mean it's not mere believing the facts about christ i believed the facts about christ before i became a born-again christian again i was raised in the catholic church they taught me a lot of good stuff i knew who jesus was i knew he died for my sins i knew he rose from the dead the third day bodily i believed all of that i had religion but not a relationship we'll come back to that in a moment okay true saving faith is not mere mental assent but believing to the point of commitment, to the point of, <laughs> like when you believed the person you were dating was the one. And you believed it to the point of making a commitment to that person in marriage. The same is true with Christ. There's a lot of people who know who Jesus is, but they haven't taken their faith to a point of commitment where they've entered into this deep relationship. That's why the Bible calls it a marriage, right? We're called the bride of Christ. Right now we are, uh, we are engaged, or actually it's betrothed to him. When the rapture happens, we will, the, 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 it will be official. We will become his bride. But, but the Bible likens it to a relationship like marriage, all right? Like marriage. So a lot of folks don't realize that. If you were to take... Uh, uh, somebody with you, and you go out into the street with a camera, maybe a recorder, and uh, or uh, let's just say this: you, you start you started going into churches in the neighborhood, and people are coming out, and so you interviewed them, and you said to them, "Do you have a relationship with Jesus?" Many of them would say, "Well, I go to church." Well, that's not what I'm asking you. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Many of them would say. I think so. Oh, that's interesting. What if I asked you if you were married? Would you say, I think so? 
Look, either you're married or you're not married. If you're married, you know you're married. And if you forget it, guys, the wife reminds us, right? We know we're married. You know? Well, that'd be weird. Are you married? I, don't know, I think so. Ah. Look, just like a person knows whether or not they're married, so a person knows whether or not they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They know that if they prayed that prayer. They know if they bowed the knee to him and said, come into my heart and, be, and, and take control. And if you're not sure, well, you probably don't have a relationship with him. Although I want to be careful here. Because there are some beautiful saints of God who always let the devil beat them up. Because they're not measuring up, right? I have known many Christians who I'm convinced they are Christians. They know the Lord. But because they still wrestle with some, I just had a woman crying after first service. God love her. She's a Christian. But she's got one area of her flesh. God's given her victory over so many things. But she's got this one area. It just breaks her. She just still stumbles into it. And she's weeping and, and you know, doubting whether she's really saved. You know what? Look, we're not all we want to be as Christians. But can you look back and say, I'm not all I once was and honestly mean that? That means something's going on, folks. There's a transformation taking place. It doesn't happen overnight. But if, it's, if you're seeing more and more fruit, if you're seeing the old life dropping off more and more, and the new life taking control, and you loving the Lord more, you really want to obey Him and do His will, guys, that is a sign that you have Jesus Christ in your heart. You have made a genuine relationship with Him. And once you have that genuine relationship, it is then affirmed and demonstrated through obedience. Again, not perfect. We're, none of us will be perfect in obeying the Lord this side of heaven. But Jesus said in Matthew 7 and in John 10, you'll know you belong to me because of the way you start living. It's called fruit, right? You'll know them by their fruit, Jesus said. So verse 24 again, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, listen, has everlasting life. Notice the Lord doesn't say that he who believes in him will have everlasting life, you know, someday when they die. But that he or she has it the moment they believe the gospel and receive Jesus as their Savior. And you know why? You know why we receive eternal life at that moment? We're not waiting to, to get it someday. It's ours right now when we accept Christ. Because eternal life is in the Son. In Him, John 1, 4, is life. And the word life there is zoe. Uh, I, eternal life. Ionia zoe. Uh, Age-abiding life. Life in all of its fullness and richness. All right? It's only found in Christ. When Christ moves into our hearts at the moment of conversion the Holy Spirit, at that instant, the life of God now fills us, Peter said. We are partakers of the divine nature. God now dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. The evidence is we start to see the fruit of the Spirit growing, right? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of that is an evidence that God is inside, is living inside of you, and the life of God is now uh, growing uh, out through, through you, the fruit, right? But everlasting life is really the life of Jesus that comes inside of us through the indwelling Holy Spirit when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. It's eternal because Jesus is eternal. 
Turn to 1 John 5. I'll just read this to you. You can read all of 1 John, but has everlasting life because Jesus Christ is everlasting life. It's all wrapped up in him. 1 John 5, starting with verse 11. And this is what God has testified. He who has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. This is spiritual life now, the life of God. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you what? Have, have eternal life. Guys, you're not working towards it. You have it. You have it. And let me just say one more time, eternal life is not a, just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. You can get our studies from chapter 1 where we looked at verse 4. In him is, was life, and we talked about life, eternal life. And we said at that, at that time, the life of God is not just uh, life for eternity. It's life in all of its fullness and blessing and joy and so on. Well, verse 24 again, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. That is a precious statement. You know why? Because it was made by the judge himself. Remember verse 22, the father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the son. This is a promise from the judge himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is saying that once you belong to him, the moment you put your faith in him, listen, listen all your sins are washed away. They have all been paid for. God marks your account paid in full. And therefore, listen, there is nothing left for God to judge you for. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, He has nailed all of our sins, all of our transgressions to the cross of Christ, and has taken them completely out of the way, past sins, present sins, and future sins. If they've all been paid for and taken out of the way, how in the world am I going to go to hell? You only go to hell because you're a sinner. And your sins have not been paid for. You haven't received Christ. But if we have received Christ, Jesus paid the price. He marks our ledger, all the things we did in violation of God's law, all the sins. He writes to Telestai on the bottom of our ledger, paid in how am I going to perish? How am I going to go to hell if Jesus Christ has paid for every sinner? Now, I am not advocating for a sinful, carnal life because your sins are already taken care of. As Christians with the Holy Spirit inside of us, there's no way we want to live like that, right? I mean, I believe what I just taught you with all my heart. It doesn't make me want to go out and sin more because I'm eternally secure. It makes me want to sin less because God has been so good to me. Now that's the absence of the negative. As we bring this to a close, let's look quickly as the Lord goes on to give us the presence of the positive. The end of verse 24. It is not 
shall not come into judgment those who receive Christ, but has passed from death into life. And again, guys, just to kind of recap as we close, before we got saved, we were dead spiritually. And of course, spiritual death is being separated from God. Physical death is where our consciousness is separated from our body. Spiritual death is where our consciousness is separated from God. That's why the lake of fire and those who spend eternity in there weep and wail and moan and all for eternity because they have been severed from everything that resides in God. Now look, Paul said right now, believers and unbelievers, uh, you know, in him, we live and move and have our being, right? It's what the theologians call common grace, where God even makes the sun shine in the fields of the unrighteous, brings rain uh, on those same fields of unbelievers. There are things that God gives to unbelievers as a part of common grace because the goodness of God hopefully brings them to repentance. So right now, even unbelievers can know in, in love, joy, peace, everything that's good about life comes from God. Even unbelievers, though, right now can, can experience joy, love, peace. They can experience good things in life. Imagine an existence where you are completely severed for every, from everything God is. There's no light, only darkness. There's no love, only emptiness. There's no hope, eternity of separation from God. This is one of the reasons I believe that people weep and wail and gnash their teeth for eternity, not only because this is an existence that you can't even imagine, but also because they realize forever they didn't have to be here. I didn't have to be in this horrible place. Why didn't I listen to my spouse or my parents or that goofy guy I work with that kept putting tracks on my desk? I'd laugh and rip them up. Why, why didn't I listen? He was telling me, or she was telling me, that God would save me from this eternal judgment. If I would receive Christ. I, I laughed about it. I, 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 I didn't take it seriously. Once we put our faith in Jesus, we were born again made alive spiritually guys and at that instant at that instant we passed out of the state of spiritual death where god's wrath was upon us and we were placed into the state of spiritual life where the blessings of being god's children are now upon us and again once we have received christ and have eternal life we will never be judged with the wicked or sent to hell John 10, verse 28, Jesus said, I give to them, those who believe in me, eternal life, and they shall never perish in hell, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. That's what's called eternal security, folks. All right, let's finish. Go back to John 5. Let's read verses 25 and 6 again. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. When Jesus said the hour is coming and now is, he wasn't referring to a literal hour of 60 minutes. 
This this was his way of talking about a special time in history. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 4, verse 4? He said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Jesus is saying, The time that you've been waiting for, ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam blew it for the human race, and God pronounced the curse. He said, there's coming a redeemer who will crush the serpent's head and will restore everything that the devil has ripped off from you, will restore you to me and all the blessings I intended from you from the very beginning. That hour, Jesus said, is now here. I'm here. And so, guys, once again, in verse 25, the word dead is a reference to unbelievers. Those who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. They hear the voice of the Son of God when the gospel is preached. And if they accept the message and receive the Savior, listen, they pass from death into resurrection life. So the first resurrection that Jesus speaks of is the resurrection of lost souls at the moment of salvation. And this, this resurrection is going on right now all around us. As Jesus said in verse 25, the hour is coming and now is. We're still operating under that, okay? We're still operating under that time. The age of grace is what the Bible calls it. A time in human history where God is still opening his arms to sinners and saying, come, and is saying, come to me. All you who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. doesn't matter what you've done. I love you. I, I died for those sins. doesn't matter how bad you've lived. I will receive you if you come to me and receive, my, receive me as your Savior, Right? This is going on all over the world as we speak. Right now, the gospel is being preached all over the world, many different kinds of people, either face-to-face, on the radio, the television, maybe a track, or somebody just opening the Bible and reading it for themselves. And people, once they hear the gospel preached, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are raised from the dead. dead they are raised from being dead in trespasses and sins to, to new life in Christ. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. We can all say, I know it firsthand. Those of us who have received Christ know the transformation. He has has wrought. All because we give our hearts to him. Well, guys, that then sets the stage for the last two resurrections that Jesus talks about in verses 28 and 29. He called them, these are his words, The first he called the resurrection of life. The second he called the resurrection of condemnation. Very important that we understand this is, again, as Jesus said, nothing is more important in your eternity. These two resurrections, um, well, you need to understand. Uh, he, He told us, listen up. I solemnly swear this is important information. Don't miss this, okay? And so, and I just say that because so many churches are no longer teaching end times. It's called eschatology, the study of last things. They're no longer teaching end times, rapture, coming judgment, uh, kingdom age, none of that. It makes people uncomfortable. They want to fill the the seats, so they want to placate. They they want to pacify. The Bible says we, we must teach to penetrate the heart. But there's a lot of folks who have no idea what's coming. They have no idea what judgment is all about. 
Um, we need to understand this. So come on back. God willing, we'll, we'll look at these two resurrections next time. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. It's a light to our path. It will never stumble in darkness. As long as we set a course right down the middle of your word. Father, we ask that your spirit would continue to bless these studies. Yes, Lord, this is information. It's called doctrine. Well, you know that. We need to know sound doctrine if we're going to live fruitful Christian lives. So, Lord, give us grace to continue to rightly divide your word and to take from these verses exactly what you meant and that we might apply them into our lives properly. We ask, Father, all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.